0: Amen. Thank you, Anders. Good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. I'll tell you what, this is, uh, it feels like another Christmas service, like a third Christmas service. So there's a a bit of an existential crisis, though, that I I have to say I'm observing among you, Um, and it has to do with the multiverse and the fact that some of you are becoming persuaded this morning that it's real, because you're realizing that for all these months or all these years, there's been a second you that sits in your seat. And I've watched it happen, where you're looking at each other, you're going, what are you doing in my seat? And you're like, no, no, bro, this is my seat. And you're like, are you me? Do we exist in parallel in the multiverse? And it's happening right now, and unchristian conduct might ensue. And so what I want to do is implore you not to spoil this moment of goodness with unchristian conduct toward the second you. So your assignment is to make friends with the other you and discover, like, I, I look around at so many of you and it's happening to me. I'm like, you sit there, but you sit there. And so who's actually sitting in the seat? This is a, this is a real thing that might take weeks or even months to work out. And like, see, you guys aren't supposed to be there. What, but, you, but somebody else is in your seats. Who is the LaPose? The LaPose and you're both Denver United. <laughs> this, is, this is all too trippy. Right. Like, where do we go from here? I don't know. We've caught up to the download bar. Well, Happy New Year, and I hope that we can enjoy, on a serious note, getting to know the other half of our church family. This was the way it was in the beginning. Right? We all met over at the University of Denver, and then we broke into two services, and for years now, there have been largely two parallel congregations that overlap a little bit. We'll meet at outreaches or things like that, or on Christmas Eve, um, but we have the opportunity for the first time to, to as we sort of rebuild and Engage Jesus and one another where we are and just just be where we are to get to know one another that we haven't gotten to know and Be the family of God. And I'm just so excited for that. So thanks for being here. Thanks for coming early. Thanks for navigating the seat dynamic and a little bit more complicated parking. Thanks for all of you heroes in United Kids who are making it possible still for us to disciple the unreached people group of children right under our roof. You are more the sacrificial heroes than ever before. And we're so grateful for you. And I'm just really excited for how God's going to work in our community, in our church family this year. Um, before we jump into the word, I also wanted to say thank you for prioritizing Christmas Eve, both, com- both coming and celebrating and honoring Jesus and his birth and his advent into our world, but also for inviting your family and your friends and your coworkers. I had the privilege of meeting so many of them, and I invited some friends, and so many of you were gracious to them, and just wanted to say thank you for embracing what that's all about and, and inviting the love of Jesus among us. And then thank you as well for all of you who shared your talent. Can you believe that every bit of that came from you all, from this congregation? And we're, we're not small, but we're not huge. It's not like there's 20,000 people to draw from that you'd have that much talent. It's really incredible that Not only that it exists in our congregation, but that so many of you were willing to give your talent, your time, your service to make such a special birthday party for Jesus and such a special opportunity at the time of year when everybody's a little religious to share Jesus' love and maybe give a redemptive expression of them. So can we just say thank you to everyone who gave their time, their energy, their talent to make that happen? It was really, really special. And I'm so grateful to all of you. All right, ready to jump into the word for the first time in 2023? Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we give our focused attention to your word now. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come in a fresh way, that you would awaken our hearts, illuminate your word, and transform us as we seek to grow in the people you've created us to be. It's in Jesus' name we give our worship attention now. Amen. History records a little-known episode that would be comical if it weren't so dark. It was in 1888 that the French news media made an awful mistake. Two brothers, both well-known in society, one particularly known uh, for being a famous scientist. And that year, French newspapers somehow were misinformed thinking that the brother who was the scientist named Albert had died, published obituaries about his life. It was in fact his brother Ludwig who died. Imagine the adding insult to injury, the pain you would feel as a family, not only losing your brother, but then having the other brother eulogized. But it didn't stop there. Perhaps the reason for the mistake is they all wanted it to be true. The famous scientist Albert had achieved wealth and notoriety for being a manufacturer of weapons and arms. He was a chemist by training and was credited with the invention of dynamite a more efficient way to kill on the battlefield, along with numerous artillery pieces, medals for withstanding the heat of artillery fire and other means of mass destruction. One French newspaper at the false conclusion of Albert's death condemned him for his invention of these military explosives. In his obituary, they wrote, the merchant of death is dead. He who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before died yesterday. Well, you can imagine their embarrassment when they discovered it wasn't Albert, but his brother Ludwig, who had actually passed away. Albert, the merchant of death, posthumously labeled, lived on. Well, as history tells the story, Albert was distraught. He saw himself from the outside in. He had the rarest opportunity to read his own obituary, to experience the way that his community and his countrymen mourned or rather celebrated his passing, to measure the impact of his life. And it undid it. Very much like A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens where Ebenezer Scrooge gets a visit from the ghost of Christmas past and then present and yet to come and sees how people are going to feel giddy, pragmatically happy when he passes away. Well, this internal crisis precipitated a change in the scientist's life. Recognizing... In that time, how much he had taken from society for his own gain. He devoted the rest of his life to philanthropic work, to making amends with society, to doing good where he had sown harm. He took his vast fortune and the proceeds of his weapons manufacturing company and used them to endow an award that would stand after his lifetime, a different sort of legacy, and ennoble works toward goodness and societal improvement. His name was Albert Nobel, and the Nobel Peace Prize is now his legacy. And that story strikes me for not just how extraordinary the events were, but how biographical to the life of a follower of Jesus. We all once were lost until we were found and then we're left with this internal crisis of who I've been and what I've done and how I've taken to enrich myself and how little profit it's gained me, let alone the other billions of people in the world. And so where do we begin? Digging ourselves out of that hole. How do we change the story of our life? The new year for many is a real, if fleeting and fantastical attempt to do just that. Our new year's resolutions are however pie in the sky, earnestly meant, I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to be more selfless. I'm going to be on time. I'm not going to bite off more than I can chew. I'm not going to inconvenience other people with my underdevelopment or bad habits. We make these resolutions, but we make them cynically because something in us knows that we mean them well, but lack the power to carry them out. And so by mid-February, they're words on a journal page. But not with Jesus. Jesus builds into our lives rhythms, months and years, seasons, times of change. The starting of a new calendar cycle is at once arbitrary and deeply powerful because it's an awareness of a rhythm and the possibility of a fresh start, of God's making something that was old, broken, irretrievably selfish, new instead And so every year at the start of the year, it is our rhythm at Denver United. Some of you have done this with us for years. Many of us are new with us since this time last year. And so I want to invite you to be a part of it. It's our rhythm like we celebrate Advent in the month of December to observe what we call awakening. It's a time of waking up, just as the name says. Self-discovery, reckoning with the unlovely parts that we find, and then purposing for the old, as the scriptures promise, to be left behind in the last year and all things or something to be made new. Awakening is a time of prayer and fasting and consecration, a time to turn, to begin again, to say, even now, God, Even perhaps toward the end of my life with so much water under the bridge, can you make all things new? What could you do with me? Do I too receive a fresh start? The difference between New Year's resolutions and the journey of spiritual rhythms is like the difference we talked about last month during Advent between wishful thinking and hope. They have some common attributes, but wishful thinking is based on nothing, where hope is based on a promise. So too, the rhythm of awakening isn't rooted in mere regretfulness or wishing that I could be someone different this year. But the promise that in Christ, we are a new creation. The old is gone and everything is being made new. The promise that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Yes. The promise that if we ask, we will receive. If we seek, we will find. And if we knock, the door will be open to us. And so as it is with awakening, with advent, so it is with awakening. Our pursuit is based on a promise. Our method, our means of drawing near to God at this time of year with this spiritual rhythm is prayer, fasting, and consecration. You'll hear us over the next month talk a lot about prayer, fasting, and consecration. Here's what this isn't. Do religious stuff for a month outweigh the bad deeds with good deeds because God really likes it if you get hungry. So do that. It's really religious. And then the bad deeds will just sort of go away. That's not what's happening here. So what is? What is at the heart of prayer and fasting and consecration? Well, consecration is returning It's awakening. It's rededicating our lives to Jesus, aligning our actions with our words and seeking first what matters most to us. How does prayer and fasting play into that? We're going to talk about that in different formats and gatherings over the next month. But perhaps the most mysterious and misunderstood, and probably arcane, so misunderstood for good reason, is the spiritual discipline of fasting. That seems about as relevant as King James language, these and thou's. Didn't we leave some of that behind? What even is fasting? What's it all about? Well, in the Old Testament, we see God's people fast for Three primary reasons, intercession, which is prayer, trying to move God's hand, asking him to do something for us, and then grief, and then repentance. Look at the word of God with me. In Daniel chapter three, we see the people of God at their lowest point in captivity to the Babylonians And Daniel says, I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition. Petition is asking God for stuff, right? Requests, help us out of this dark place. Much like we talked about during our Advent study in the book of Isaiah, that's contemporaneous with the book of Daniel. And so there he is pleading in prayer and petition and in fasting in sackcloth and ashes. So fasting was a way of saying, we really mean it, God, and adding weight to our requests, hoping that we could get God's attention. Kind of like when your two-year-old grabs your face bombs and turns them toward you. It was kind of like that. But we have God's attention now, right? We all have the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ came to earth, died on the cross to communicate that we're all on God's radar screen. So what could be less relevant, okay? Intercession was one reason they fasted. Grief was a second. In Esther chapter four, there was a decree that the king, who was a madman, was going to, this was the successor to the Babylonian king. The the empire, kind of like the big fish came along and ate the smaller fish. The Babylonian empire gobbled up the people of Israel. And then the Persian empire came along and gobbled up the Babylonian empire. And their king was twice as much uh, of a madman as Nebuchadnezzar, the king in Babylon. And so that guy declares that he's just going to go genocide. He's going to go Joseph Stalin on the people of Israel. And so they're in grief. In every province to which the edict and the order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. So it demonstrated culturally and in their religious heritage, uh, a a deep sense of grief. And then lastly, repentance. In Joel chapter 2, the word of God says, even now declares the Lord. In your darkest hour, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. So fasting seemed to underscore, add veracity to the repentance, the turning back of the people of God. In light of Jesus and his imparting the Holy Spirit to us, One could argue that fasting became outmoded, much like the temple sacrifice with all the animals because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. And so he didn't abolish but fulfilled the law in that way. Or we could maybe make the argument that fasting has simply ceased to be relevant You can still do it, but Jesus came as our ultimate intermediary and intercession. And so we don't need to get God's attention because he's already gotten it. Jesus said, though, in Matthew chapter six, when you fast, don't look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show their fasting. So don't, in other words, as a matter of course, don't be a hypocrite. That's kind of his Sermon on the Mount theme, right? Don't do it for outward show, do it for inward purpose. But built in, baked into this statement is the presumption that you would continue fasting. When you fast, do it this way, don't do it that way. It would seem that if Jesus fulfilled the law as pertains to the spiritual discipline of fasting, which was so Woven into the religious culture of Old Testament Israel, it would seem, right, that he would say, you know what? Instead of fasting, do this. So we can't just dismiss it out of pocket. What are we to make of this oddball, arcane spiritual practice? Our title is When You Fast. When you fast, all right, let's look quickly at New Testament fasting and see how this discipline didn't get abolished or fulfilled, but changed. The cross does three things to Old Testament practices. This is a little bit of an aside, a hermeneutical side note for how we study the scriptures. Remember, hermeneutics is the class in seminary that's the study of the study of scripture. So, how we study the scripture like mature, intellectually honest followers of Jesus, okay? the cross does principally three things to Old Testament practices. One, it fulfills them. In other words, they're complete. So Jesus made animal sacrifice, not less meaningful, but complete. So we no longer are atoned for by the blood of goats and lambs. Two is that it leaves it unchanged Much like Anders taught us a moment ago with the spiritual practice of tithing. It was relevant in the Old Testament. Jesus makes clear it's relevant in the New Testament. The cross leaves that unchanged. So it's opaque to one practice. It's transparent to a second practice. So it just goes right through. But then there's a third filter that the cross will apply to Old Testament teachings and practices. It's sort of like a translucent filter where it will change or alter the significance of that practice. That, I believe, is what happens with fasting. Let me show you why I think that. In the New Testament, fasting is about intimacy with God, discernment, spiritual maturity, spiritual authority. It's turbocharged. In Luke chapter 2, remember in the Advent story, the side characters of Anna and Simeon, old prophets who are in the temple seeking God day and night. It says, Anna never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. And so what did fasting do? It wasn't getting God's attention, but rather it's somehow like underscored, deepened, supercharged her intimacy with God. In Acts chapter 13, in the church of Antioch, that was the first documented church in the New Testament. They were worshiping the Lord and fasting. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. And so there's a discernment component in the context of seeking God. They didn't need to grab his face like a two-year-old and get his attention. They had his attention. But if the Old Testament made seeking and hearing from God much more empowering, we don't have to climb the mountain and go to the oracle of God, the seer, and say, what does God say? and he says, thus saith the Lord, we all get the seer, the oracle of God in our hearts. He's named the Holy Spirit. It's like we've all got the red phone to heaven. Incredibly empowering, but much less clear. Anyone ever, guilty confession, wish for one of the Old Testament days where you've got a big decision to make and you just want to go to the oracle of God and have him say, thus saith the Lord, do it. And you're like, okay, got it. Thank you. Here's 10 bucks. Like less empowering, but more clear. The Holy Spirit leads us through a process of discernment. God's with us. We have his attention, but we grow in intimacy with him. That's God's agenda, right? By having to seek, find, listen, discern. Anyone ever get frustrated by that process? You're like, the heavens are as brass. I pray and my prayers bounce down. You get all religious in Old Testament. You throw in a thee or a thou when you're talking about your woes. You know what I'm talking about. Thou hearest me not, Lord. (laughs) Like he knows you mean business when you break out the thou's. And so fasting in the New Testament is, it shows up in the context of supercharging that discernment process. Or in Mark chapter 9, Jesus' disciples, I love this one, he went up on the mountain with three, his inner circle, and he glowed and he transfigured and they got to hang with the ghost of Moses and Elijah. Remember that story? But the other nine were down there and they're like, we didn't get to see the ghost of Elijah, no fair. But then some, they're like, well, we're gonna do some miracles while they're up there. So we'll have something to talk about too. And so a dude whose son seemed to have like epilepsy or something like that, brings his son to the disciples. They're like, Jesus is up there with Peter, James, and John looking at like the ghost of Moses, but we can get the demon out of your son. But they couldn't get the demon out. Do you remember the story? They're trying to cast it out and the demon's like running amok. And so finally Jesus comes down. They're like, we tried to get the demon out. He wouldn't come out. What's going on? So Jesus casts it out. And later they're like, the heck? When you sent us out two by two, we didn't take the staff of the money. The demons came out. Why didn't they come out this time? Jesus said, Some kind, listen, only come out by prayer and fasting. That's kind of like a what you talking about, Willis moment. Like, excuse me, what do you mean? Like, prayer and fasting? There seems to be some direct correlation between growth into spiritual maturity and the spiritual discipline, prayer and fasting. See how it's weaponized? See how it's grown up from the Old Testament through the filter, the translucent pass of the cross? One more, Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders as they're seeing the New Testament church sprout up everywhere across Asia Minor. They start to create some order in the madness. But these elders are people that were like Corinthian Dionysus worshipers last month. And so they're having to get them up to speed. So they pray for them. And with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they put their trust. So it seems that in the New Testament, with the Holy Spirit as the intermediary, now there is a spiritual authority growth associated with fasting. So far from being irrelevant, this is a spiritual practice along with prayer and some others that God invites us into in order to grow, in order to deepen, in order to turn, to change, to make our lives align with our ideals. When we realize to our chagrin that we've been imagining ourselves this way, but actually Causing people to experience us that way, like Albert Nobel. So, what does fasting do? How does this work? Is it all a bunch of religious hocus pocus? I think the meat of it is in Galatians chapter 5, and this is where we're going to look for a few minutes this morning. I say, Paul writing, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires, what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. The scripture depicts in stark and disquieting clarity the story of inner us. There are two parts of us that pull in two different directions. There is the old us He describes that as the flesh. And there is the new us. He describes that as the spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and lives in our hearts when we give our lives to Jesus and we invite him in. But he doesn't just take us over. He doesn't program us now to only worship God robotically because what kind of love, what kind of service, what kind of obedience is compulsory love? Compulsory service or obedience, right? Does your phone love you when you push the on button and it turns on? No, it's simply following its programming. And so God gives us the Holy Spirit as a means of growing in the Spirit into the full new life he's designed for us, that he knows is going to fulfill us, but he doesn't require it. He doesn't foist it on us. That's his love. That's his dignity. And ultimately, that's our identity being made a little lower than angels, scripture says, in the image of God. And so what are we to do? We live torn by two forces, the old self, the new self. Do you remember in Romans chapter seven where the apostle Paul writes, the good things I wish to do, when I get right down to it too often, I don't do. And the things that in my level headed moments, I don't wanna do. Those things, when I get in the heat of the moment too often, I do, ah, wretched man that I am. Anyone identify with that? Anyone never read Romans 7 and don't know where to find it in your Bible, but you hear that and you're like, bro, that's me, man. So what are we to do about that? Is God gonna come to the earth in the form of a man, show us how valuable we are, leave the Holy Spirit, tell us, hey, I hope it works out for you, only to be pulled in two by these two competing forces? What's best for us we often don't want to do when it comes right down to it in the heat of the moment. And that's not just spiritually. That's kind of what it feels like to be a human, right? Like, I know that eating healthy is the right thing to do. And I mostly want to do it now. But when I'm driving somewhere, and I have like a few minutes to stop and get something, and I'm going to my son's game, and it's cold out, or I had a long week at work, or insert justification for fast food burger here. (laughs) Like I don't care what I think now when standing in front of people who I want to think highly of me, and when I think about wanting to live a long time. Right? Or like last year, I got the most wonderful gift for my birthday. Mari got me a Peloton and I Peloton. It's like me and 57 year old Barb from Connecticut. Like I stick it to her. I mean, it's like neck and neck, but she's good. She's fast. We're always on at the same time. And I'm like, dang it, Barb. You've got like calves of steel. Anyone else in the Peloton tribe? All right, so I mean, do you? Uh, it is, it, it, it's wonderful, and I know it's good, and I know after I do it how good I feel, right? Christy, you probably do it really faithfully. I am a, I am a profligate Pelotoner. I do it, I, I'm a Roman 7 Pelotoner. So like, when I get home, especially this time of year, and it's dark at like 3 in the afternoon, and I get home and it's 6, and it feels like the middle of the night, and it's cold because who keeps their bedroom warm? And the Peloton's there, and I'm like, it's freezing. And... Then I'm like, oh, but my kid's coming home. He might, you know, he's in 11th grade. I don't even understand the math he's taking, but he might today need help at his homework. Mari might need help cooking dinner. There might be some groceries she needs to go get. There might be a pregame, pregame for the Nuggets tonight that needs watching. And I come up with a thousand reasons not to ride the dumb thing. This is how we are. Okay, this is how I am. (laughs) Hey, I didn't get this uh, wasp waste for free, people. <laughs> Actually, I, I kind of did. I, I was born skinny and I'll likely die very, very skinny. <laughs> it's what Galatians 5 goes on to say. The acts of the flesh, obvious. Sexual immorality. Impurity and debauchery. Idolatry. Witchcraft, and idolatry like we talked about in Advent isn't just having a tiki statue on your shelf. It's whatever you worship in, ahead of God. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. These words make us squirm. They make us uncomfortable. Not because We're prudish and we blush at the mention of sexual immorality, but because too often they describe us. They make us feel a little shame. Not just because we know we shouldn't, because like some religious figure in our memory is wagging a finger at us, but because we know we don't want to. That's not who I want to be. That's not why I gave my life to Jesus. I was rescued out of that stuff. It's not what I want my life to be like. But man, the stuff I do, I don't want to do. The stuff I don't want to do, I sometimes do. And the scripture says there mustn't be any of this because you can call yourself religious, but those who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so I can sit up and say, hey, that list, if that's you, stop it. And you're like, yeah. You want the pastor once in a while to talk tough. Stop it. Just stop sleeping around. Stop being a jerk. And you want to get roughed up a little bit. But the thing is, if you were going to stop it because I said stop it, somebody would have said it a lot longer ago than now, and you would have already stopped it. We don't just stop because we wish to or because we hear someone say it or because we get the goosebumps in a moment. We stop because we find the power to stop. And we start because we find the power to start. And the kingdom of God isn't about words or goosebumps. It's about power. And the Holy Spirit is the power of God living in you. And fasting stimulates the Holy Spirit's activity in your life. And that's why we do awakening. I don't get any kickback from heaven. There's no spiff reward for me for the number of people I get to give up on pizza. Hey, if you could get like two thirds of your crowd, you know, you're gonna get like a hot tub with your house in heaven. None of that. I literally get nothing. I am an idiot for standing up here and trying to tell a bunch of wealthy, successful Denverites in 2023 not to eat cheeseburgers. It's insane, except that I want everything that God has for you. And fasting trains our flesh in God's ways. That's what it does. It trains us in the ways of God. I remember when our kids were little, one would say to the other, you're not the boss of me. (laughs) I always thought that phrase was so delightfully literal. You're not the boss of me. Fasting is basically your spirit person saying to your old flesh person, hey, bud, you're not the boss of me. I am not cattle. I am not driven by my impulses. I have a will. It is renewed according to the image of my creator. I choose the will of God for me. And I say to you, no. Easy to say I'm going to say now. Hard in the moment. Fasting trains my flesh to submit to the spirit of God within me. It teaches me, on a practical level, I'm capable of wanting something and not having it. 1 Corinthians 9 says, don't you realize in a race everyone runs, but only one gets the prize? If you're going to run, run to win. So he says, I run with purpose. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. That's what fasting is about. It's starting the year, empowering our New Year's resolution to awaken to everything God has for me and die to the stuff that entangles and hinders and keeps me held back and feeling gross and defeated. It's weaponizing that desire with the power of the Holy Spirit. On a practical level, it trains our flesh in a couple of... Ways that when you think about it, make sense. Fasting, like, allows me to work out righteous living on a cheeseburger instead of cheating on my taxes or my wife or instead of blowing it and going off on somebody and wrecking relationships. It enables me to get all of that experience in a way that is between me and God, right? Like the same things that you might feel when you're with that person that you know you ought to not keep talking with, but you just feel good about it. And you're like, oh, it's just, it's just, a, it's just a friendly banter at work or whatever, but it enables you to keep that going. That same justification process, that same pull in the flesh that happens in that illicit relationship that threatens to shipwreck your life happens when you're like parked outside five guys, and you're like, I'm not going to do it. Mm. I'm just going to smell it. Mm. Smells good. (coughs) Looks like fish is back on the menu, boys. You know, you're in that mode. We work out righteousness in the privacy of us and Jesus and something that is ultimately only going to matter to us. Like I find that when I cheat on my fast, I feel all the same feelings that I can imagine I would feel if I like stole something from work or something, right? Or from the drugstore. I I feel that same sense of righteous sorrow and guilt and And then I got to go to God and repent and ask him to replace the guilt with grace and all that. And it works out righteousness in a practical way. Okay, we got to wrap it up here. Secondly, fasting quiets the competition for my soul. The competition I'd call the big three, ambition, distraction, compulsion. We're going to talk about these over the next several weeks in a series called Simplify. So I'm just going to name them here. Ambition, distraction, and compulsion. Fasting quiets the competition for our soul. Richard Foster, in his wonderful book, Celebration of Discipline, wrote, more than any other spiritual discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. And in quieting the competition for our soul, it opens us up to the Holy Spirit, Jesus. And we'll finish here in Luke 4 full of the Holy Spirit, right after he got baptized, just sprung onto the scene, heaven opened. He heard the voice saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. People were like, what was that? It sounded like James Earl Jones, but we couldn't see him. And then a dove descended. And then Jesus goes about his ministry. But first, the Holy Spirit leads him out in the wilderness where he fasts. He's tempted by the enemy, and you know the story there. Man shall not live by bread alone. Read it. It's a great story in Luke chapter 4. Here's how it culminates. Then, after those 40 days of fasting and prayer, Jesus, listen, returned to Galilee filled with the Holy Spirit's power. He went out led by the Spirit, so he had the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit if you call on Jesus as your Savior, but it's not a rubber stamp kind of thing. He cultivated the Holy Spirit's power by prayer and fasting, came out of the wilderness, the most unlikely turn after his 30 years of obscurity come to an end, and he's finally revealed with like a James Earl Jones quality voice from heaven. Wouldn't it be funny if it wasn't James Earl Jones, if it was like high and nasally? This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. You're like, what? That's what God sounds like? No, it can't be. It's like Charlton Heston. I know it believe it. And he has this whole moment, but then it's like, you've been waiting for 30 years. And God's like, it's so important that you learn from my servant, Jesus, how to live for me on earth, that he's going to go fast for 40 days and come out only after that in the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you see it? Do you see it? Cause I can keep preaching. I'm just getting started. Fasting reinforces, it substantiates that we've chosen to take Jesus on his, at his word and seek first the kingdom of God. When I feel hungry, it reminds me that I really want a burger. I want God more. Yeah. Jesus said, ask and it'll be given to you. This is me asking with more than lip service. So how do I begin? Where do I put fasting into practice in my life? We're going to take three weeks. We call it awakening. And together, we're going to, all who are willing, embrace this discipline, walk this ancient path, not for the purpose of getting some religious gold star on our Sunday school chart, but for the purpose of quieting the competition for our soul and cultivating the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. Couple of guidelines. Fasting has to do with food. That's what the word means. I didn't write it, I didn't make it up. Abstinence is a different discipline. They're related. But when you say I'm gonna do a media fast, here's the difference. One, that's not what fast, that's not fasting. Fasting has to do with not eating food. Media fast is abstinence. I'm gonna abstain from things that distract or compel me. That's good. I I encourage you to add some abstinence to practice with your fasting. But the difference is you don't die. Your body doesn't cease to function. Your organs will not shut down if you don't do social media. So it's just a different thing. Does that make sense? I mean, that wasn't supposed to be funny. I'm I'm a little, (laughs) I'm a little flustered now. I'm just like, in point of fact, they're different. (laughs) Does that make sense? Like, were you laughing like, haha, that was a joke? Because it really wasn't, like fasting. If you don't eat indefinitely, you will die. Your organs will shut down. If you don't play Clash of Clans, you will not die. It's just the way it is. I am 100% sure. Oh, is it the obviousness of it that was funny? Okay, I get it now. Thank you, friend, for helping me. All right, nothing like when several hundred people know what's funny about you. At least my fly isn't open, that would be worse. Make fasting sacrificial, not legalistic. You want it to be sacrificial. So there's a ditch over here where it's like, yeah, I'm gonna fast edamame beans. (laughs) Okay, sweet. I remember remember as a kid, the boys always wanted to fast vegetables when we would do, what are you gonna fast? David said, I'm not going to offer a sacrifice that costs me nothing. It has to be sacrificial. But there's a ditch on this side that's legalism. Like, uh, that's why Jesus said, hey, like, don't draw attention to it. It's not about how how much you can make yourself suffer. It's about training your flesh in righteousness and quieting the competition so you can open up the competition for your soul so you can open yourself up to the Holy Spirit. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garment. See, it's a rending of our heart. Return to the Lord your God. And then he goes on to say, blow the trumpet in Zion and declare a holy fast. And here's what he Asks them to do God through his prophet in the context of this holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Set yourselves apart with this assembly. Don't just get together for fun, even though that's great to do with people you love. But get together for a specific purpose of growing in Jesus and dying to your old self. Bring together the elders. Gather the children. And so the third practical is prioritize in this season of awakening to help your fast along. Prioritize sacred assembly. We're going to have a number of awakening prayer meetings. You'll get more info about those. You heard Anders share. We'll send you more details. They're going to start next Sunday. And for three weeks, we're going to pray together during the week. Uh, in the mornings and here on Sunday morning before service as a part of solidarity and a part of cultivating the, the, the specific ways that God's presence is with us when we gather in our prayer. So joining our fast to a sacred assembly, that's the way we're gonna approach it. You know, we're gonna respond here in a moment uh, in worship and just invite the Holy Spirit to, to, to lead us. Don't do this because I said do it. Follow the Holy Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Uh, Over the years, one of the many ways I've learned from my wife and grown um, being married to Mari is that this area of prayer and fasting and consecration is an area that she's just really strong and passionate. And she's shared before here uh, some testimonies of the ways that God's worked in her life through prayer and fasting. And so, Mari, you want to just maybe share a little bit about that and then lead us into our time of worship and prayer?
1: Are you all encouraged this morning? Challenged? So good. I am really passionate about prayer and fasting. I've seen it work in my life um, more than any spiritual practice, hands down. But I want to encourage everyone in the room right now because I know that many of you, as, as Rob was teaching this morning, were like, Yeah, 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 I want that. And you might leave today and someone might ask you, So you're going to fast? Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Because we, we tend to put prayer and fa- or fasting in a category that's just for the super, super spiritual people. How many of you are not? Come on. Confess. We, we think it's really for those super, those, those monks that are in the mountains and the caves and all of that. And he- but here's why. Here's why it matters. 2 Corinthians 10 says, we are human But we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down strongholds, to destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. Fasting is our weapon. I don't know about you, But in many moments right now, if I said everyone in the room, including myself, how many of you really want to know God? Seriously, I want want you to really consider that question for a minute. How many of you in this room really, really, not religion, not religion, how many in this room really want to know God? I know there's sometimes I really do. It's usually when I face really tough times or that person that I see struggling. And all of a sudden I want to pray in a way that heaven moves on their behalf. I want them to see that Jesus is real. It's in those times that I'm seeking him. But but the reality is we live in this world and, and things fight against us. We have these obstacles that pull us down, these strongholds, these temptations, these things that entangle our lives. Fasting is our weapon. And I end this with this as the band gets ready to worship with us. Isaiah 55, verse 1 through 2 says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money... Who don't know God? Who don't know how to do this spiritual thing? Who don't understand? Who have no money? You're poor in spirit. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without the things. These these things that are like these false things that fill our hearts. They're 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 in unsatisfactory. Don't spend money on those things. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what? does not satisfy those illegitimate pleasures, those things that can entangle our hearts. Why spend money on those? We know they're not gonna last. We know they're not gonna fill us. We know they're not gonna fill those longings. And then he ends with, listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And you will delight in the riches of fear. Jesus is the bread that satisfies So can we all just uh, stand together as we get ready to worship? I just wanted to invite those of you who said, uh, yeah, yeah, I want to fast and yes, but no, 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 I can't do it. And I want to just invite everyone right now to not think in your mind whether you think you can do it, whether you think you're spiritual enough or you have the ability, but to simply say, God, it's the beginning of a new year. Resolution, whatever the world has to say. But this year, I know that I want to know you more than I know you right now. And for some of you, knowing God might be, there's something in my life that I cannot kick that constantly stands in the way of me knowing God. I want to know him, and then I pull down. I want to know him, and I, I just fall, and I struggle, and I go into this place Not this year, God. I'm going to know you. I want to eat the bread of life that satisfies. And this is what I want you to picture in your mind. If you want to even just shut your eyes for a moment, I want you to picture, because we're not fasting yet, I want you to picture the most tasty, home-baked loaf of bread, the the best loaf you've ever had. There's not, I don't think there's hardly a person in this room who does not love bread, right? You might be gluten-free, you may not be able to eat bread, but you like bread, let's admit, right? It is the most comforting food. Like how cool that Jesus chose that. Like you ever had a, a home-baked loaf where someone takes it out of the oven and puts that like honey butter on it for you and it's just toasty and it's warm and they just give you one slice and you're like, oh, it's like so comforting is Jesus. That is what he wants to do in your life in the fast is to be the bread of life. Be the comfort for your soul. Be the longing fulfilled. And so Jesus, can we just lift our, our hands in a posture of I'm open, God? Jesus, we acknowledge that we were bad at this. We struggle with living a holy life God, we know that you are holy. And God, as we surrender these entanglements, these things that strip us away, these illegitimately needs that we fill ourselves with illegitimately, God, we acknowledge this morning that you are the the bread of life. You are the one who satisfies. And Jesus, we're, we're willing this year to say yes I'm going to try this thing called fasting. I'm going to give something up. And as I do this for day after day, for the first week, the second, for these 21 days, I'm going to trust that through this this thing called fasting that you are going to begin to break off strongholds in my life, entanglements that keep me for years from knowing you, that destroy me, that hurt me, And, God, I'm going to receive the fulfillment of your living bread that comforts my soul. And so, Jesus, today we say yes. Teach us. Help us.